Anticulture is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. You can find us and many podcasts similar to ours by checking out albertapodcastnetwork.com. This episode is also brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. Park Power is a small local business, and like many of you, it has been closely monitoring the news on COVID-19 and the world's rapidly changing circumstances. While many of their team are currently working remotely, the way Park Power does business has not changed and their commitment to exceptional customer service will remain. Find out more about Park Power's response to the COVID-19 outbreak at parkpower.ca. I'm also doing a shout out with the Alberta Podcast Network's new initiative called Pod Power. With Pod Power, ATB is making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode we're giving a Pod Power shout out to the Alberta Queer Calendar Project, which features monthly podcast dramas by queer Albertan writers throughout 2020. Episodes are released monthly and are free to access anywhere you get your podcasts. Listen and learn more about the Alberta Queer Calendar presented by Cardiac Theatre in partnership with What It Is Productions at queercalendar.ca. Hi, everyone. My name is Josiah Sinanin, and I am the host of Anticulture. Thank you so much for listening to the special episode I'm bringing to you today. We're living in very hard times, as many of you know and have experienced in the past couple months. The world is still in the midst of a pandemic, and we've had to quickly relearn what life looks like and how to best take care of ourselves. No one is meant to be an expert of physical distancing, but we all had to play our part. Now we face and grieve the undeniable evidence of the detrimental effects of systemic racism throughout our society. George Floyd will always stand as a symbol of our broken systems and racist structures, and we all have to look in the mirror and acknowledge our prejudices. I'm proud that my last episode came out on Black History Month and that I turned the focus to Black history in our province of Alberta. I hope you had a chance to learn a side of history that is rarely taught but needs to be. The video footage of George Floyd's death really threw me for a loop. I watched helplessly, as I'm sure many of you also did, with tears streaming down my face and a plea in my heart. Please, please stop this. As I struggled to cope with the brutal footage, I also remembered this is by no means a one-off event. Police brutality, especially fueled by racial profiling and prejudice, has to end. Personally, I decided to make a donation to the NAACP, sign petitions, and participate in my city's racial protests. I'm also currently reading White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism by Robin DiAngelo with one of my roommates. And it's been a fascinating and educational book so far, which I would recommend as a starting point if you're looking to learn more. All of this still didn't feel like enough, but I would encourage you to take some of the same steps. As a podcast host that often talks about race, society, and culture, I intentionally select guests that carry diversity. I select guests that challenge the stereotypes that our society has placed on them, and I bring them on my show to highlight the humanity we all share. Through conversation, we coexist, we collaborate, we work together in love, and I am committed to nothing less as my career evolves. I will always favor people of color, women, 
members of the LGBTQ plus community, and other minorities as we share stories and continue discussions. These voices need to be amplified, heard, and respected, even if at your core you disagree with what's being said. The conversation still needs to be had. That is and will continue to be my mission with Anticulture, and I thank you all for giving me that opportunity. These events are triggering and heartbreaking, and they make us take a good, long, ugly look at the state of humanity. As a journalist, I've struggled to find inspiration and find meaningful topics to speak on while still being sensitive to what's happening around me. This has led me to the tough decision to not pursue a full fourth season of Anticulture, but rather keep the discussion ongoing when I can and when an opportunity presents itself. I'm hoping to revise the show when we're out of this pandemic and come back even stronger, and I hope you'll stay with me on the journey as we continue forward together. This week's episode is one of those instances. A couple months ago, I got a request to talk to Omar Mualim and Dylan Rice Howard, journalists and filmmakers of the CBC documentary, Digging in the Dirt. This film is an incredible and insightful watch available to stream on cbc.ca and on the CBC Gem app that speaks on another issue that is too often silenced, toxic masculinity in the Alberta oil industry. I don't want to preach to the choir too much here, given that I dedicated my entire first season to highlight the province of Alberta, but it is pretty common knowledge, at least to me growing up in Calgary, that the oil patch is a rough place for tough guys. The setup is kind of like this. Younger guys may be 18 to 30 years old, head up north for the summer. 21 days on, 7 days off kind of thing. They're flown to the vast nothingness of the upper part of the province to work the oil field. They make a ton of money, and I mean a ton, or at least they used to. And when they come back at the end of the summer, they're pretty rich. Their first investments? A giant truck. I don't know what it is about trucks here, but it's a weird status symbol among this group of people. The stories drift around that, since there's not much to do up north, it's mainly drugs, booze, and sex while they're staying in the camps. This was all my baseline knowledge of the situation my stereotypes, if you will, on the Alberta culture up north. And a lot of it is true. However, after chatting with Omar and Dylan and watching Digging in the Dirt, my perspective got a lot more diverse. We're about to see an insider's look that breaks the fourth wall, outlining the many men who have suffered in silence because of the culture that has been propagated in these settings. For me, this is a fascinating look at what anti-culture is about the stereotypes and the normalcies of a subculture that have even deeper meanings to them. The effects of having to conform can often be detrimental. Omar and Dylan, thank you for joining me on Anticulture and talking to me a little bit about your documentary that you guys put out. Yeah, thank, thank you so for much. inviting us on the show. Yeah. Appreciate it. It's nice to talk about something other than a pandemic right now, though obviously <laughs> I'm sure we'll be dipping into that a little bit too. Definitely, yeah. It will be it will be refreshing for me as well. And yeah, so how how refreshing it is to talk yeah. about depression <laughs> and, and suicide. I was just gonna say in, it's uh, it's uh and men's mental health. But I mean those are the times we're living in right definitely. now. It's the evil we know, right? Definitely, yeah. And I think it's uh it's so important what you guys did with this film too because it's such a taboo topic, especially for men. And I know that that's something that 
I'm an Albertan born and raised. And yeah, it's difficult to even start that conversation with the culture that we kind of have here. And I think you guys really broke that down well in the film. I really appreciate that just as a viewer on my end. Happy to hear that. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I think it, it you know, opened my eyes up when I first started thinking about, I guess, the psychological toll of this workforce that's been in front of me and around me my entire life. So, you know, it was it was slow to come to me as well. Yeah, for sure. So I guess kind of before we really jump into the the big questions here, maybe you guys can just give a little introduction of who you are individually, just kind of your full name and how you guys started working together. And then we can dive more into this film, Digging in the Dirt. Yeah, sure thing. So my name is Dylan Reese Howard. I'm an independent filmmaker from Edmonton, Alberta. For about the last five years or so, I guess I've been sort of uh, obsessed with this culture of fragile masculinity in in uh, my home province, trying to tell stories about it in a way that uh, that sort of humanized people who who tend to get uh, humanize a conversation. I guess that tends to be one that's that's mired in politics and and point of view and economics. Um, you know, much more interested in, in sort of the people who are, uh, you know, the people who make this place, this province, what it is and why they choose the lives that they do or, or whether they choose the lives that they do. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, a, a, a short film a few years ago called Peak Oil, which is a short narrative film about a laid off a pipe fitter whose whose life is sort of in disarray because he, he doesn't know who he is. And he doesn't have a job to do. And uh, I've never worked in the oil and gas industry myself, but just living in Alberta, you see this. I mean, it's it's all around you. Um, so, uh, so I, yeah, I want I want to tell a story that that really just kind of touched on that that desperation and that yeah, again, that fragility with with men when they don't have a, a really defined sense of purpose, and and then very often they tend to go mm-hmm. back to the, the uh, they tend to rely on the women in their in their lives to sort of mother them back to a state of existential well being. So that that's kind of right. what that film was exploring and. I shared the film with uh, Omar because I was a big fan of the work that that he had been doing on kind of a similar subject, but from a more journalistic lens, writing about the toll that this oil and gas industry is taking on people's mental health during the economic downturn and even before the economic downturn. But he was writing about in a way that I thought was uh, was very humanizing as well. So I thought there was some some overlap. So I shared the film with Omar and, and he really liked it and we'd known each other as sort of acquaintances, but after after we realized that we were sort of thinking and, and writing about the same things, we, we got together for coffee and talked about it for uh, for an hour or so. And then when this uh, opportunity to, to develop a documentary came along, I, I thought that I would take this sort of thematic overlap and bring Omar in and mm-hmm. building that into, into into this project. I have a little bit of a of a film background, but I've I've been out of the industry for or had been anyway for probably about a decade before Dylan roped me back in. Thanks very much, Dylan. Um, that's actually a sincere thank you for that. Um, I know it came across sarcastically, <laughs> but it wasn't supposed to be. It's a real thank you. Yeah. No. So I I've been reporting on mental health in the oil patch, men's mental health specifically in the oil patch for a couple of years when I published a piece in BuzzFeed Canada. And it was a long form feature about the the surgeon suicides and what they are grounded in. 
and whether the recession itself is solely to blame. Uh, spoiler right. alert, it's not. You know, it's been going on for a while. Yes, there was a surge, but there was a steady increase in suicides and, and anecdotally suicides in, in the mining industry and in work camps and, and the oil patch for a while. A lot of that had to do, you know, unsurprisingly with just the pressures of the job and the pressures also include the isolation, the physical labor, as well as just the the pressures that come with being anybody, but in particular a man who is a, a provider and and has so much of their identity wrapped into this. And when that is taken away from you or when you find that being a provider is not mm -hmm. enough to, I guess, hold your family together, your marriage dissolves, whatever it is, you find yourself in a pretty desperate right. place. Yeah. And those were the couple of kind of stories that I was writing about when this BuzzFeed story came out. Dylan got in touch with mm -hmm. me. We got coffee. I did not know he was, he'd made a short film, uh, Peak Oil, which is essentially about the same phenomenon, but, but it's scripted and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful movie. I would encourage anyone out there hearing this to, to go seek out Peak Oil as well. And Dylan obviously saw an opportunity to make a documentary on this subject collaboratively mm -hmm. as a filmmaker, myself journalistically. And we, we learned from each other, you know, we, we brought our best skills to it, but we also had an opportunity, I think, to swap hats here and there. And it was a really, it was a really good fulfilling experience. And what was amazing about it is, you know, I'd done probably three stories about this before the documentary came out. And I definitely was happy with the results. I was definitely happy with the audience that it reached. And I guess the awareness that the article had raised. But what was incredible is once you are on a national broadcaster, once you're on the CBC, your audience is, you know, a hundred times mm -hmm. what it was before. And it was incredible how much more affected people were by a documentary than by a printed story, because the kind of emails that I was receiving from people, I mean, in, in some respects, it was really sad because you could imagine the kind of people that are touched by a documentary like this so much that they have Absolutely. to reach out to the filmmakers and tell them how it affected them, why it yeah. affected them. On one hand, that's, that's really sad. But on the second hand, what it told me is that they felt seen right. and heard right. for the first time. Yeah, and that's the powerful thing about that visual imagery, especially something that I feel is a bit of uncharted territory in Alberta specifically. And I think I'm curious too, because both of you kind of mentioned that you didn't have a specific background in oil and gas. And obviously you're influenced just as I am with how much it affects Albertan culture. But what was it ultimately for both of you that allowed you to, or I guess encouraged you to pursue that topic a bit more? Were you personally impacted by people on the field or did you just kind of recognize a pattern and what made you decide to, to lend your talent to such a niche topic that, uh, that you aren't necessarily connected to? Yeah. I mean, I wish it, I wish it was something more personal. It's not, I don't have a background in oil and gas, but I think like everyone else in Alberta, I have a foreground in it in that it is mm -hmm. everywhere I look, right? I mean, everything in this province is affected by it. 
even if you don't realize it, if there's a new supermarket or restaurant that opens in your neighborhood or opened in your neighborhood, say in the, in, you know, in the early 2010s or mid 2000s, there's a really good chance that the reason it's there is because, you know, is because of, of the money that's coming in through this industry. Absolutely. And if that restaurant closes down, let's say this is before the pandemic, you know, if that restaurant closes down or if you suddenly see more vacancies in your neighborhood or more houses for sale, there's a very good chance that that has to do with layoffs in the oil and gas industry. And I mean, those are some pretty simple mm -hmm. connections. There are more complicated ones and intricate ones out there that, you know, more sophisticated and smarter people could could identify for just how, you know, for how overbearing this industry is in our province. I think it is maybe more personal than than Omar is letting on or, or, or perhaps wants to admit, or at least this is how I think about it anyway. You know, you kind of have, you have two choices yeah. when you're confronted by, I mean, Omar set the stage very nicely there, right? So you know that there are all these changes that happen in your in your culture and society in Alberta that are directly related to this oil and gas industry. So it, it's never really tangential, mm -hmm. even if you're not directly involved in the work yourself. So I think when you're confronted with that, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who tends to get a little angry or, or frustrated about the fact that, you know, if the price of oil drops, we start laying off nurses in this province or something, right? So my choices when I'm confronted with that feeling are I can denounce this whole industry and anyone who would want to have anything to do with it and condemn them as being stupid and, and not, um, or, or yeah, just kind of mm -hmm. decrying that this is the condition in my province or or I can approach it with this sense of curiosity and start asking questions about why our culture is the way it is um, why this province is the way it is so so for me that's that's what right. I think is is going on here you know rather than just engaging in in these reactionary feelings I wanted to understand what leads somebody to work in this industry and and why it's become just so so widespread and, and such a force in this province, you know, be, beyond just the fact that like the oil mm -hmm. is here. I mean, I, I know that, that, that that's the primary reason, but, but why did this culture right. around it develop the way that it did? And then I can kind of reconcile my relation to my relationship to it instead of just having it make me angry or something. I imagine it has, it's really, tied up in the 70s and, and Western nationalism and just, you know, the amount of pride that people take in it, the, seeing petro-nationalism kind of like spark up again with so much fervor in these last years. I went to that Greta Thunberg rally and saw the counter-protesters there and the way that they owned the right. Canadian flag and the maple leaf on their protest signs and on their, you know, on their clothes and hats. It was really fanatical. And I realized that, you know, that is, that's always been there. It's just super fired up right now because you have yeah. a premier like Jason Kenney, who's really stoking it, but you also have, you know, more intense, extreme circumstances in the oil and gas industry with, with right. I guess, the health of the oil and gas industry. You're right, Dylan, oil and gas is actually personal for me. It's, it's, it's even more personal for people who see it as like part of their Alberta identity. Even when I was like in elementary school here in Calgary, and I come from a mixed race background and I have a bit of a, an understanding of Northern Alberta from my mom's side, but 
it's just common knowledge, even as a kid, that the oil industry is a tough place to be in, but we need it. And even at a young age, there's almost this image of if you go and work up north and, you know, if you spend your summers doing that hard work and just man up through it, you're going to make more money than anyone else and you're going to have respect in the province. Yeah. It, and there's also this this pride, though, that you are contributing to yes. a greater good. Yes. That's the interesting thing about it is that if we have convinced ourselves and each other that the oil and gas industry it belongs to mm-hmm. all of us and that we are all empowered by it. And I think Dylan has some very interesting thoughts about it because Dylan likes to compare the act of going off to the oil patch very similarly to the act of going off to war. Right, which you mentioned in your documentary. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, you hear that come up a couple of times, I mean, people talk about the, the work camps, they're, they're related to prison culture a lot of the time too, you hear that as well. Yeah, I think that the oil industry lends itself really well to this narrative of, of um, male and particularly young male uh, sacrifice. You know, since we don't have a, a direct war to go and fight, the oil patch becomes this place where, where young men can sacrifice, you know, their bodies, their, their young, healthy bodies in a way, you know, for the sake of their families. Which is, but yeah, I think right. it's an intrinsically uh, sort of uh, male male desire, um, and and culturally supported and enforced by by a lot of factors. For the sake of their families, but in the last few years, especially, it's been more than just for the sake of their families. It's really, really become about the health of this province. And that you you are not just doing this for your family, you're doing it for your neighbor, you're doing it for your city. And right. so when... And even the nation, like and there's even that the nation, right? No matter yeah. how ungrateful the nation might be at times or right. might, might seem at times, right? Like there's a feeling that Quebec is ungrateful or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, but they um, still get on those planes. <laughs> that's, what, that's what people, right. people will say, right? right? Like it. Oh, you don't want us to yeah, do this work? Such an Albertan yeah, response. you don't want us to do this work? Let's stop driving then. Right? Like, and, but, and it's, I, it's an understandable response. I don't blame, I don't blame people, it I is. guess, for seeing it that way. Because if you take an audit of Alberta news and media and even look at Alberta leadership in the way that they talk about it, and Rachel Notley can pretend like she's – She's not a part of this, but you know, Rachel Notley put on the I Heart Oil Sands sweater and took photos in that. Mm-hmm. She put together a rally for pipelines, which was super idiotic for her to even think that that was going to somehow bolster support, you know, from the right for the NDP. It was never going to happen, but it, it right. is inscribed in this entire province. Yeah, and I think on one hand, it. I mean, there's. Obviously, people that grow up here, we have that understanding that it's it's important that it's part of our culture and our reputation because it does add a lot of value from a back-facing, I guess, standpoint. But I think where it gets interesting for me is kind of that concept you guys were talking about with the, the going to war and being a sacrifice and kind of painting yourself as a hero, as a man. And I've seen it kind of on both sides too with, I mean, friends who've gone up there that have families. And I've seen wives that are, you know, proud of it, um, albeit scared about what's going to happen up there. But it's interesting, too, because I find that a lot of the people I know that have been involved in the oil patch there, and you touch on this so much in the documentary, 
And I'm curious if you think that there's always this guard up where you can't really, or you don't really show the difficult part of it, or you just say something like, yeah, it's really tough up there, but you don't really get into the emotional side of it. And that is, I agree. I think it's part of that fragile masculinity, but I do think there are people I've met that they almost don't notice or, or allow themselves to fully accept just how harmful the situation is. And I wonder like how many people are even, even aware, I guess, that they might have more worth than what they're putting out. And I think you touch on that by saying, you know, men need to be connected to their purpose. And if that's the only purpose they have, then that is what is valuable to them. So why would they question it? But well, it's a very fragile purpose, right? Because, you know, economies, markets boom and bust. But on top of that, you can be replaced, you can injure yourself, you can be financially stretched. I didn't even fully comprehend how particularly volatile the Alberta oil sands project is just because I was just reading today actually about how it's such a uneconomical or inefficient way to get oil out of the ground that it's so dependent on the price of oil to be high, to be even mm. remotely profitable. So that's why there are these extreme booms and busts that are so directly tied right. to the, the price of barrel of oil. Yeah, we, um, we but can- But yeah, I mean, just, sorry, Omar, just yeah. finish up here. Yeah, just, just, I mean, I heard from one person, it's not in the documentary, but one person I was sort of pre-screening for the documentary was talking about how they grew up in small town Alberta and they would have high school teachers who would tell them to drop out because it made more sense for them to mm. go and get a job in the patch. So, I mean, if that's, when you're being told that from such a young age, that really does become all that you know. And uh, it just makes it that much harder to break out of it. So, of course, you're going to put those blinders on and pretend like the things you don't like about it don't exist. Right. And do you think there's a moment for, and I know you can't speak on the majority of everyone, but do you think there's a specific moment maybe where, a kid is raised in that environment and then they go out to the oil patch because they know it's it's honorable and that they're going to have a good reputation maybe in their small town. Do you think there's a moment when they realize like, hang on a second, this actually is not good for me and this is an unhealthy environment? Or do you think... It wasn't with my generation. Maybe it is a little bit more with guys now who are coming in with a politically different yeah. stance um, where it's just it's a lot more patriotic notion. Yeah, I guess the the question there is, do you think there's a moment where people realize this is unhealthy for them when they actually start the job or, or go north? Like, I think this is kind of, yeah, I mean, the people I'm peers with that have chosen to do that, they they almost seem like they're looking forward to it before they first do it. So yeah, where do you think that yes. changes? Well, I think it probably changes when you have dependence when you grow up a little bit more when you become a provider. I mean, a lot of the guys of my generation, Dylan's generation, who got in, got in early. I'm turning 35 this year. My cohort graduated in 2003, which mm. was the year of the Iraq war, which was the year that the cost of a barrel of oil went high enough that pumping, you know, the oil sands in Alberta became viable, let's say. So a lot of those guys came in and I think it looked good for a while, but you know, you hit your late twenties or whatever, maybe even just mid twenties and it's time to just settle down a little bit. You've, you've found that woman that you want to build a life with and suddenly being away for two, mm -hmm. three, four weeks at a time, 
more. I've heard of people away being away for more than a month at a time. It makes it really difficult to hold a relationship together. There's a lot of suspicion over each other's partners in that kind of lifestyle as well. There's a lot of temptations in the oil patch, but there's also a lot of temptations when you are someone's partner just waiting, mm -hmm. at, sitting at home, waiting for them to come back. So I think it's hard to find the stability that you ultimately want. Just as an average human being, everybody wants that kind of peace and stability. And most people want to have a family in their life. And it is hard to do that in a healthy way when you are gone as often as you are. So I think that's the moment when people start to realize that this is more difficult than it is. So I think there are signs of that earlier on as well. Like you hear a lot of stories about young single rec guys who were living recklessly, spending recklessly, and it was always seen, it was typically seen as just boys being boys and guys having fun. But I think right. underneath that was a lot of uh, substance abuse to cope with the isolation or the fact that, you know, you're in this overwhelmingly hyper-masculine environment, you're working grueling hours and you're making so much money, what else are you going to do mm -hmm. to blow off some steam or give yourself a little bit of a reward? I think one of the things that was apparent to me over the course of making this documentary or through the, through the course of making this documentary is that the people who really thrive in this kind of environment of transient work, fly in, fly out work, the, these kinds of boom and bust cycles are the kinds of people who are very goal oriented and self-motivated people. So they, they go in and they're going to work as hard as they can for five years and they're going to make a million dollars and then they're going to invest and retire or whatever. Like those are the kinds of people for whom the sort of prosperity that's, that's available that bubbles up with this kind of model. Right. Um, those are the people who can really find some quote unquote success or at least economic success within that. But the people who are drawn up there because it just seems like the, the best option for them or they don't know, it just seems like the highest paying job. They don't really know what they necessarily want with their lives. They're just kind of following a script. Yeah. And, and then, yeah. And then they be, they get caught up in, in trying to provide for a, for a family. And, and before you know it, you know, you've, you've got all these, you've overfinanced because you were told that you had to have this particular kind of house and this particular kind of vehicle and this and all these toys and and that's where people get really really trapped it's dangerous mm -hmm. and, and i mean you can probably probably tell that i mean for me a big part of this exploration and making this documentary and making films on this subject is because i have a lot of empathy for somebody who finds himself in that situation and i and i don't think that it's their that it's entirely their fault you know we created this system absolutely and you know we kind of put the pressure on on them in a lot of ways to achieve these goals or 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 want these things so i mean yeah for me that's that's i think where a lot of this this uh, that's where the impetus to make this documentary comes from Definitely. And I think it's such a fascinating look at masculinity too. And I love that tie-in because ultimately the system we have set up is basically like a stew for brewing toxic masculinity because we're, we're setting up this ideal that's unattainable and ultimately harmful. And it's affecting generations of people in our province. And I think it's something that's not really looked at from that perspective, especially because it's such a a small blip on people's radar if you're not from Alberta. And I think something that I found that was interesting is even the culture that kind of grows around that. And if you go to some of these remote towns where there is oil patch and people are, are going to work, and I personally have never been to any of those places, but 
I guess the reputation that's developed for those places, which a lot of them aren't even towns, but the culture is very much, you know, you drink every night, you do drugs with the guys, you go to the strip clubs, you burn all your money, and then you go home for that little bit of time. And I think what I'm curious about, even from your guys' perspective after making this is, do you think that that, I guess, that numbing culture and that anger response and kind of that I really like the illustration in the film of the pop can being shaken, all of those aspects. Do you think that comes from a bit of a generational pattern? And why do you think it hasn't been broken even today? I think a reason why that generational pattern hasn't been broken, that that kind of that picture of the way to, uh, I guess, release all this sort of pent up emotion as a man. I mean, it's possible there could be kind of initiation. There's a, there's a, an element of initiation, you know, so, so it's kind of what's modeled uh, for you. But I think it's just that there, we don't offer a lot of healthier outlets for that pent up energy to, to be released through. You kind of have to mm-hmm. roll with what's, with what's available. And, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of time that, that is drugs and alcohol and, and prostitution. And, and I think, I mean, I, I've felt it just from a filmmaking standpoint, like the one time that I worked on a feature film, um, where you're working, where I was out of town, away from home, working six day weeks and like 16 hour days. I mean, you better believe that in the two days that we had off, the entire crew. I mean, I got absolutely destroyed. <laughs> that, that's how that's how I chose to <laughs> to to release after after yeah. the the kind of stress that I was carrying in sort of a mid level producing role on, on this feature film and having all these just all this stuff to worry about carrying that around. Like I, I wanted that. I wanted that responsibility to be gone and I wanted to do something. Yeah. I just wanted to just be, be free of the, the burden of, of work. Yeah. And the easiest way to do that in the small town that we were shooting in was to go to the bar because there was nothing else to do. I think a lot of it has to do with, with what's available. And I think a lot of it is just has to do with how the length of the shifts and how all encompassing the work is, you know, it's, it's not the kind of job where you go home at the end of the day and watch TV with your spouse uh, as a way of unwinding, right? Like you're there, uh, mm-hmm. you, you, know, you wake up in a camp, you go to, you do a 12 hour shift, you come back to a camp. It's kind of like the job is all around you all the time. So as soon as you get away from it, you just want to do something that's as far removed from the structure of, of your life as possible. A lot of it has to do with control, right? Like you, your, your life is so regimented in a lot of these jobs that when you are free from it, you just want to let loose completely. Um, I think that's a big factor mm. as well, the, the, the kind of control piece. It's worth pointing out, too, that camps have taken a lot of steps to reduce the amount of you know drinking or potential like substance abuse that happens on site. on uh, Not on site of the work site, but on the camp site. Camp is just right. an extension of work, though, it kind of said. So in the early days of the Alberta oil boom, all the camps had bars, um, which is, I mean, it's kind of funny to think now. In ways it makes sense, yeah. but when you take into account just how quickly people develop bad habits and how quickly they realize that like, oh, we're just creating an environment where people work all day and then come here and then get super drunk. And then in an environment of hyper-masculinity, there's fists being thrown and et cetera, et cetera. Maybe we should make this a dry camp. Right. It's funny to think that like they didn't realize that before, but anyhow. Yeah. 
so, you know, you go to these camps and you'll, you'll see a bar, but it'll be empty and it'll actually be basically like a Wi-Fi lounge now. And it'll be like a billiards table and et cetera. But there's still ways of getting some beer in or whatever it is. Um, you are obviously taking a risk because um, drug testing is widespread. It's random. And it actually, it's, I mean, it is actually kind of difficult to go out to the liquor store, you know, 20 minutes away from camp in Fort McMurray and, and come back because a lot of the, a lot of the guys come up there on a plane and then they're immediately get on, on a shuttle bus, go to the camp, and then they go to work every day and come back on the same bus. So th- they don't actually have the, the amount of liberty that you might think. All of this is to say that I think that it's on the days off and it's when they go home that the bad habits and you know the the worst kind of behaviors often rear their heads and it means that mm. their spouses and their families have to sort of bear the brunt of it because they come home right. after working their asses off and it's a hard job you know you work hard now you want to play hard and so when they come home they're not even quite themselves either because they are the part of Mm -hmm. them that feels like they deserve to blow off some steam to relax to reward themselves so it's kind of like an alternate version of yourself that comes home too yeah right but then if you don't know if you don't get the opportunity to be yourself at work and then you don't feel like you have the opportunity to be quote unquote yourself at home either then when you know when you lose (laughs) exactly yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's something that, you know, we heard from our subjects. I mean, Chris Johnson, who's one of the, the three main subjects in the movie, he talks about feeling mm-hmm. like he became a completely different person, became very negative, had a lot of like, you know, anger in him and, di- and just kind of didn't recognize himself, but realize, I guess, I don't know whether he had that awareness then or if he just has it now, but had the awareness that he had become kind of a product of his work environment and he was in that home. Right. Yeah, I'm really glad that you highlighted in your documentary all of the, I mean, a lot of the stories are obviously heart-wrenching, and I have a lot of empathy too, especially taking a deeper look at it. And I don't think I've seen it in that level where it's so face-to-face. But ultimately, a lot of the stories that were featured did have an element of hope to them because, you know, there's people who've recovered from their bad habits. There's people that came to a realization, they woke up that they you know, they had been affected negatively and it was influencing their families. And I think that that is, that is something good to look at. However, I'm also curious if you think that there is, I guess, currently a way for there to be a healthy masculinity to come out in this camp environment. Yes, I think, I think there, there absolutely is. I mean, some of, some of my friends work in the oil and gas industry and they, they are very level-headed guys with um, Mm. good, healthy sense of their masculinity, I guess. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's completely possible as Dylan was saying earlier, there is a type of personality. I'm sure there's more than one personality that, that does well in this environment. Um, You can call them thrivers or highly organized or goal oriented, or maybe they're type A. I don't know what it is, but they go there and they have a good head on their shoulders and they come back with a good head on their shoulders. And while they're there, they, mm. I think they, you know, they speak up 
for people who are struggling, who might not feel confident speaking up for themselves, whether it's against bullying or whether it's just someone who has a hard time saying when they've reached their limit. There's a sense of of brotherhood and camaraderie there that's very similar to the kind of brotherhood you might see in a fire hall or, yeah, or even in the barracks too, right? So it's not just this competitive hyper-masculinity. And in fact, you may think that it's the young guys who sort of perpetuate the worst habits, but that's not necessarily true. A lot of the young guys, the Generation Mm. Y, Generation Z, who, like us, came up in a world with a lot of bully awareness, like anti-bully awareness campaigns, you know, a, a day for mental health awareness, Bell Let's Talk, whatever it is. You know, this stuff isn't just, they don't see this stuff just cynically and roll their eyes at it. They are very much a product of it, often is the case anyway. These are the people who feel more comfortable speaking up for themselves and saying like, no, I need, a, you know, I need a mental health day. Or like, you know, speaking up to their foreman and saying, hey, I don't, I'm not yeah. in a good place today. And I don't think I should be operating this machinery. That younger people are probably better equipped mm-hmm. mentally. And often it is the, it's the older generation that uh, don't know when to stop, that are afraid of saying that they can't do something that uh, still believe that there's a necessary culture of initiating, you know, the rookies, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, just add to that by saying I was really inspired by the people we spoke to in the film, you know, especially somebody like Glenn, who's one of the subjects in the film, who's, who's an older an older guy, I think in his, in his 50s, who has had quite a, quite a journey with mental health in his own life. Despite being, in so many ways, the the definition of a man's man, you know, this guy's a, this guy's a bow hunter <laughs> uh, up north. He, he's also somebody who's opened himself up to the the benefits of meditation. A lot a lot of this is because he seems to have a really strong relationship with his with his partner. And I, I just I just found it yeah I just found it so inspiring. And, and I and I thought to myself, I mean that's kind of the one of the takeaways for me from this documentary is you know seeing somebody like Glenn who's willing to own up to these these maladies that have the sort of haunted him over the course yeah. of his life and and be very vocal and upfront about it and talk about it in a documentary you know I, I, I thought to myself like wow okay like there's no there's no reason why like if I'm gonna talk the talk I gotta walk the walk myself so I mean I, I started going to therapy after after making this documentary because of people like Glenn and and the and that's and, amazing and, and and the example that they set. So, I mean, I imagine it's the same for a young guy who w- works at Husky with Glenn and sees that. So that's one way that I think the culture of masculinity is, uh, is, is perhaps changing and, and, and getting to a healthier place within oil and gas. But also, I think it's just important to remember that the oil and gas industry is an exemplification of a lot of this toxicity that we that, that we detail um, in the film and examine and, and, and are trying in a way to dismantle. But I think we just need mm-hmm. to be frank about all the ways that we still use bullying to police behavior in so many facets of our society and yeah. so many different jobs. You know, nursing. I mean, look look at what the House of Commons is like, right? Like just yelling yelling over people with, yeah. because they have an opinion that you disagree with. You know, like it's childish, and that, you know that's that's at the highest level of uh, of of government. You know, and, and, right? So, right. Um, yeah. I mean, 
this is we could have made this documentary about a number of different in- industries, but this is the one that has the most bearing. And I think that as a documentary about mental health and in particular men's mental health, it's not just that this industry has a lot of bearing over our environment and our lives. It's that if you want to take a look at hypermasculinity or toxic masculinity and the sort of like diamond process on men that stoicism has, this is the industry. It is toxic masculinity in its most concentrated form. Thank you so much for listening with me and joining me for another episode of the show. You can watch Digging in the Dirt on the CBC Gem app or the CBC website and can follow the film's Instagram page for more updates at DITDFilm on Instagram. I want to hear your thoughts on this discussion. Send me a DM or a tweet at Josiah Podcast on Twitter and Instagram or leave me a comment at josiahpodcast.com. I truly hope I got you thinking this episode. As always... Let's ask questions, let's dig deeper, and let's not allow culture to draw its own boundaries. Together, we can find the heart and the truth in every story. It's often not what it seems. I want to give a special thanks to We Edit Podcast for the studio space for this episode, and once again to Omar and Dylan for making this interview work despite COVID-19. This episode was recorded with full physical distancing in place and with the best practices to ensure safety at every point. Learn more about We Edit Podcasts and their studio spaces at weeditpodcast.com. I hope to share with you all again soon, but until next time, stay safe and stay curious and feel free to reach out. I'm Josiah Sinanin, and thank you for listening to Anticulture. Culture.